We are finally back together uh, to give the po- podcast listeners the uh, pod they love. How the hell are you? Good, bro. It's been a minute. Um, I got two stories for you today. Not story, fucking, you know, things. Um, Radical Islam and the D-Day anniversary. What do All you right. got? I have uh, MSU football scandal, uh, an update on the Detroit Lions, and some other quick notes. Hit the music. Um, so if you haven't figured it out by now, radical Islam is on the attack, and Europe is on the defense. So Saturday, London Bridge was attacked. Um, three jihadis drove a van into people on London Bridge. They crashed the van. Um, they jumped out shouting, this is for Allah. They slit, They were slitting people's throats with 12-inch knives, which are many swords. There's really no such thing as a 12-inch knife. Um, the Islamists had on fake suicide vests, which I found really strange. I guess their whole plan there was maybe to have the cops not shoot them because they didn't want to, you know, detonate the vests, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like they, no, I think they uh, wanted the cops to shoot them because they wanted to, like, die at the end and be martyrs, I think was the plan. Yeah, but, I'm, I, mean, I don't know. But, yeah, it was weird that they had fake suicide vests on, I guess is my point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really know what the hell terrorists are thinking ever, so. Yeah. Crazy shit. Um, ISIS took credit. Who would have thought that, huh? Um, eight people died. More could die because a lot of people were critically wounded. Um, at least 48 were wounded. Um, they found a body recently in the river below the bridge because people were jumping to avoid the van. Um, cops in London, 90% of them don't have guns. And one of the first officers on the scene, he only had a baton and he charged the three jihadis. He was stabbed in the face, the head, and the leg. Um, but he's in stable condition. So really, that's just unbelievable that he didn't have a gun, but he still charged him anyway. I mean, that's just straight heroism at the highest level. Um, I can't even imagine that, being like a beat cop, seeing three terrorists, and only having my baton, and charging them. Um, there are reports of some cops running away, but that's just a true hero right there. Um, it took police with guns eight minutes to get on the scene and kill the terrorists. Eight minutes is an eternity. That's just shameful. Uh, the terrorists, after they got off the bridge, they ran into a market area nearby, kept stabbing people, kept slitting throats. All the while, people were running or hiding. Um, reports that some people fought back with only chairs or beer bottles because um, you're not allowed to have a handgun in London if the cops can't have guns. Citizens definitely can't have guns. Um, I saw a video of police coming into a bar, and they were screaming at everyone to get down, get down, don't move. But the cops didn't have guns. All the cops had were clipboards and radios. Like, so imagine if one of those terrorists would have came in there, 
what would the cop have... I mean, I guess the cop would have tried to fight him, but he didn't have... They didn't have guns. It's, the, it's honestly the most insane thing I've ever seen. Um, it really gave me chills. You want to comment on this so far, Conley? Um, yeah, I mean, it was horrible. It was uh, very scary stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to keep going here. There were videos that the, they kept telling everyone to get back, move, keep moving. They were holding The cops were holding clipboards. It's just mind-boggling to me how you can expect to keep a city safe without guns. It's just, it's an all-out war, and Europe is treating it as though it was just an average crime. Um, they've st- Europe has stopped five plots in five weeks, and the three weeks that they haven't stopped a terrorist plot, they've been hit with a terrorist attack. Um, so that means that they could have had eight attacks in eight weeks in the UK. So this is the threat that they face. Um, the cops can't handle it. Um, this isn't a bash on the cops. This is that they're facing an insurgency. This isn't just like your average um, crime here. Twelve people have been arrested so far connected to the terrorist attacks. So it's another terrorist cell, obviously. Seven of them have been women. So women can be terrorists too, folks. I mean, you look at uh, um, San Bernardino. There was a husband and wife shooting up people. So whenever people say, you know, if we don't let in, you know, men, we can let us let in the women and children. Well, the women can be just as radical as the men. Um, so what is the government doing to protect the people over in the EU? Or not even the EU, just Britain, specifically. Um, not much right now. The guy, one of the terrorists, he was on a documentary that they followed on the BBC for over a year called The Jihadi Next Door. They have videos of him on the BBC praying in a park under the black flag of ISIS. They have videos of him saying Sharia law is coming to Britain. Um, you know, we're a tinderbox waiting to explode. And we're going to, you know, kill all you, basically. What do you, you want to... So far. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the hell they're doing, waiting for these people to commit a terrorist attack before they do anything. Um, like they can obviously see they're radicalized, and they need to take action earlier. Yeah, um, so 850 people have traveled from the UK to fight in Syria and Iraq, and half of them have come back. It's insane. Um, so that means 425 jihadis live in the UK. Um, round them up and deport them immediately, I say. This is why the travel ban is necessary. This is why the wall is necessary. This is why fighting ISIS and defeating them is necessary. Um, the UK Prime Minister Theresa May, she came out and said, finally, enough is enough. Um, she gave four major points of how she was going to start to fight radical Islam. She spoke about how they needed to make refugees assimilate with Britain's values and not live in seclusion. Which is all well and good to say that, but I really think they're too late past that point at the moment because they have Sharia courts in Britain now. And if you don't know what Sharia courts are, it's where they decide how to handle their own crime. So, like, if a woman goes outside without a man there with her, um, they decide whether to, you know, stone her or behead her or whatever. That's what Sharia courts are. It's, like, it's pretty much terrorism courts is what they are. Um, she then said they needed to stamp out safe spaces for radical Islam in the UK online and in the real world. So that's good because she's talking about mosques, you know, preaching radical hate. She's also talking about... Um, like the internet, she called on internet companies to crack down on radical imam videos that terrorists watch to get radicalized. Um, there's an article that came out in the Daily Caller saying the radical imam who radicalized one of the Le- London terrorists lives in Michigan. So, Conley, you want to hit on that? Um, yeah, I mean, that's obviously scary stuff to know that they're right here in Michigan. What the hell? I yeah. mean, it might be in Dearborn, maybe. I don't know. So, um, they know? Well, maybe, the FBI probably should know. I mean, the FBI yeah. has thousands of active terrorist investigations, so my question there is, if we're actively investigating someone to be a terrorist, why don't we at least have them in a holding facility somewhere? You know? That's just a question I got. Um, her last point was to extend the prison sentences of terrorist-related crimes. 
which again, I mean, I guess if someone commits an act of terrorism to put them in jail longer, I guess is a good thing. But again, why are you responding to terrorists after they commit a terrorist-related crime? This should yeah, be proactive. Yeah, be proactive for sure. Um, so the big thing that's missing here again is either deportation or locking up known jihadis. I'm not talking about locking up, you know, UK citizens, you know, British citizens. I'm not talking about breaking their citizen civil liberties or anything like that. I'm talking about if you have a refugee who you know is a terrorist, who you know is preying under the black flag of ISIS, just like the Manchester bomb. And I told you guys they saw him hanging the ISIS's flag outside of his window. Why the hell aren't they kicking down his door and dragging him into a prison or shipping him back to whichever country he came from? Like, that's, it's just that simple. You can't have them there. Um, she actually changed her tune while campaigning. They have an election Thursday coming up. And she's saying she would combat terrorism hard and that she would change human rights laws of ne- human rights laws if necessary. So people got scared by this, but you got to look at the history here real quick. Um, the last time they tried to round up jihadis was in 2005, and it was actually the last prime minister tried to do this. It was blocked by human rights lawyers because they said anyone in the UK can't be taken, can't be deported, even if they're like suspected of being a terrorist, because it'd break their human rights. So they have such strict laws on human rights that that blocks that from happening. So that's her. Stance there. I'm um, Conley. You want to hop in again? Um, no, I'm, you explained pretty well. Okay. Um, so, yeah, Britain has 80-some Sharia courts. I already explained what those are. That's insane. That means that no one's assimilating. That means that the Sharia courts are pretty much terrorist courts. I mean, I can't explain any better than that. It's fundamental It's fundamental. Um, radical Islam courts is pretty much what that is. It's evil. Um, there are mosques that are no zone, no-go zones for cops in Britain. Um, they need to take a hard look in the mirror and understand that they're facing an insurgency, not just crime. Um, a big thing would be to arm their cops and their citizens. I mean, citizens can't own a handgun, and they can't carry a handgun in London. Um, so if they're not even going to give their... 90% of their cops don't have guns, and their citizens don't have guns. So I saw when the terrorist attack was happening, they told their citizens to run, hide, and tell. So run away from the terrorists, hide... And call the police. You know what it is in America? It's run, hide, fight. Fight as in your Second Amendment. Fight because you're not just going to call somebody while a terrorist is coming at you with a knife. You know, you're going to fight back. I mean, it's crazy. They had to fight him with, um, you know, beer bottles and chairs because they don't have anything else to fight with. I mean, the cop, you know, might die. I mean, he's in stable condition, so hopefully he doesn't. But if he would have had a damn gun, he could have killed all three terrorists right there. It would have been over. Forty people wouldn't be wounded. Eight people wouldn't have died. It would have been done. Um, after that terrorist attack, another one happened in France Tuesday. A man near the Notre Dame Cathedral bashed a cop's head in with a hammer, shouting, This is for Syria. Um, he was then shot twice, and the attack was over almost instantly. So, look at what armed cops do. Conley, you want to comment on that? Um, yeah, definitely they need to arm their cops. If if a cop doesn't have a gun and then a terrorist attack starts, there's really nothing they can do. Well, just for anything. What the hell good is a cop without a gun? Yeah. It's just insane. Um... And then another attack happened Wednesday morning, our time about 4 a.m., in Iran's parliament. Iran, one of the biggest state sponsors of terrorism, hit by terrorists. ISIS took credit. Um, so, 12 people were killed, dozens were injured. Um, men dressed as women walked into Iran's parliament and opened fire. They took hostages and one detonated a suicide bomb. At the same time as that was going on, another attack happened 15 miles away, still in Iran's capital of Tehran, on the southern outskirts. Um, it was a shooting spree and another suicide bombing. Um, a third attack was stopped by Iran's, uh, you know, security forces. The state-run media reports. Um, so even the biggest state sponsor of terrorism is being hit by terrorists who hate Iran 
because they're different types of the same religion. Um, ISIS hates Iran because Iran is Shia. Um, it's insane. They're both terrorists, but the terrorists even hate the terrorists because they're different from each other. Um, and when I'm talking about Iran being terrorists, I'm talking about the government, like the Ayatollah that runs the place that wants to nuke Israel because they're Jews and wipe the USA off the face of the earth because we let women drive. I'm not talking about the people of Iran. Um, so while all this is going on, Mad Dog Madness and the USA-backed forces of the Syrian Defense Forces, SDF, um, the Kurdish-backed militias, launched their attack on ISIS capital today in Syria. Um, that would, today was, I mean, I meant yesterday, Tuesday, which is the anniversary of D-Day. Um, USA has hundreds of special ops forces on the ground, along with Apache helicopters and air support, and we're going to take ISIS out at the heart of its caliphate. Hell yeah, um, rock Syria. Conley, want to comment on that? Um, yeah, hopefully they uh, can have quick success there. Um, I mean, I'm sure they, they'll probably do pretty good. The yeah. U.S. military's not bad at their job. Yeah, I would assume so. It's pretty hype. Um, so at, this, at the same time as all this is going on around the world, what are we doing to protect ourselves from radical Islam? Well, one of the big thing is we're attacking them at their heart, so no one wants to join a group that's losing. So if you keep seeing, you know, your, your like, heroes, a.k.a. ISIS, if you want to be a terrorist, losing, you don't want to back them, right? And right now on the home front, Trump is trying to get the courts to get his travel ban enacted. Um, no one knows how long the Supreme Court will take to get that done. Every day it's not enacted is another day. America doesn't necessarily put at risk. Um, the wall's not being built. That wall's not just about illegal immigrants from South America. It can also be used for anybody who wants to sneak across the border. That could mean terrorists, too. Um, illegal border crossings are down 70% right now, roughly, since Trump has taken office. Um, so now people say, you know, why, don't, why do we need a wall if it's down 70%? Well, that's because if Trump's gone, the next politician that comes in could just reverse all Trump's policies and let people in again. So when you build a wall, it's at least a semi-permanent border, and it's a sign that America, and it's a sign that America will defend itself. Um, I think there are two leaders in the world with the political will to defend their people from terrorism. That would be Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel and Donald Trump. Uh, it's a world war. Pretty much it's radical Islam against the West. And there's two leaders who understand the threat and have the will to act on it. Um, while I'm talking about that, Trump announced his new FBI director today, Wednesday. Um, his name's Christopher Wray. Um, he said on Twitter... I'll be nominating Christopher A. Ray, a man of impeccable credentials, to be the new director of the FBI. Details to follow. So I brought that up just because this guy's number one job will be combating homegrown terrorism, and he better be damn good at it. Um, he was nominated as Assistant Attorney General in 2003, confirmed by the Senate unanimously, and served until 2005 under George W. Bush. Um, he was known for overseeing the Enron Prosecution Task Force, and he played a major role in the department's post-9-11 response so that's good on account of the terrorism. Um, he received the Edmund J. Randolph Award, the Department of Justice's highest award for public service and leadership, when he left the DOJ in 2005. Um, the big thing he's known for since then is being Chris Christie's defense uh, attorney in Bridgegate. You know, it's a big political thing where Chris Christie might have used his powers to shut down a bridge. Yeah, he shut down, he like messed up traffic for like... He might have. I mean, it's not proven that he did, but he, Chris Christie might have done some bad shit and this guy defended him for it. Um, So, the Democrats might hit this guy hard against that. I don't know a lot about this guy. Um, He obviously wasn't on our list, but at face value, he looks to be a solid pick minus defending Chris Christie. Although, um, a Democrat, Richard Blumenthal, a senator, 
from Connecticut tweeted that Ray has solid credentials. Um, so we'll see. I don't know. I mean, the Democrats could put up a big fight against him on account of Chris Christie. Um, Conley, what do you think about this guy so far? Um, I mean, we don't yeah, know a lot think, about him. I don't think the Chris Christie thing's that big of a deal, though, either, because, like, if you're a defense attorney and you get hired by somebody, you you defend him. Like, yeah, I mean, it's a high-profile case, too, so yeah, I mean, it looks just, good on his just, record. It's a job, and it's not like he was, like, I mean, when you're a defense, everybody deserves a defense attorney if they're in a case. It's also like, not like he was defending was. a rapist or something, you know? Yeah. It was Chris Christie's fat ass. Yeah, it's Chris Christie's fat ass closing down a bridge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this guy... If he does get approved by the Senate, he got approved unanimously, unanimously to be the Deputy Attorney General under George W. Bush, who was great on fighting terrorism. How many votes does he need? What? How many votes does he need? 66? Or is it... No, it's uh, it's just a, I think it's just a majority. He'll get passed. I think it's Yeah, or maybe it's two-thirds. I don't know. I'm sorry, I don't know that. I don't but... think they were going to pick a guy unless they knew he was going to get Well, he got, he got approved unanimously back in 03. Yeah. So, I think most of the Democrats who are still here today approved him back then. Um... Yeah, so pretty much the gist of this whole terrorism thing is that America's on the offense right now taking out ISIS and its stronghold in Raqqa, Syria. Um, if we can take them out there, which I assume we're going to because you let Mad Dog Mattis go after those sons of bitches, he ain't going to stop until they're all dead. Um, that's really going to make them look like a, a losing team, and no one wants to back a losing team. That was uh, W's big thing, too, was saying you got to fight them out there so they don't you know, look strong and more of them hit us at home. Um, Europe really isn't doing a lot right now to defend themselves at home. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, you got any closing thoughts on this? Uh, nope. All right. I think you're good. I think you right. wrapped up pretty good. Wrapped up pretty good. Covered it pretty well. On to the next one. Alrighty, uh, moving on to our biggest sports story of the day. Biggest sports story of a while here. It's the, uh, news over at MSU, the, uh, football players that were being investigated for what seems like forever. Uh, it had been going on for months. Um, and it seemed like it was never going to end. But it has come to an end. The investigation has anyway. The uh, trial is going to go on for another months and months, um, as they always do. But the investigation came to an end, and it found three players. Um, they well, they decided to charge three players. Um, we don't know if they're going to be innocent or guilty for a while here, but innocent to proven guilty here at the fake news podcast. Yeah. But um, just being able to charge them was enough to for uh, the football program there to decide to dismiss them, um, which is definitely the right call. For um, sure, it's kind of like the. Uh, it's kind of an automatic thing when in a case like this where they have to get dismissed, um, which is the right thing to do. So three players have been dismissed um, from the K, um, from the football team. It's always sad to see cases like this. Obviously for the victims and the the family of the victim. I think there's just one victim in this case, but yeah, it's obviously sad for the victim and their family. Um, hopefully justice is served here um, as far as the legal side goes, for sure. Um, so the three players were Donnie Corley, Demetric Vance, and Josh King. Um, so these players were uh, pretty were going to be pretty important for the MSU football team here. They were all four stars in twenty four um, on twenty four seven uh, recruiting website. Um, King was their top recruit, and Corley was um, probably their top freshman last year. One of the top freshmen in the country. He was he had a really good freshman year, um, for sure. He really stood out on the team. Uh, so. They're all from the 2016 recruiting class, and this had been, this, it was the 17th best class in the country that year, um, and this was one of the MSU's best recruiting classes. Um, it was the best recruiting class they'd ever had under Mark D'Antonio, and it was the best they'd had since 2004 when Nick Saban was the coach at MSU. So this is a really good recruiting class for them, but it's really fallen apart since then. Um, uh, five, five or six kids have left the class since then, four of them, they, these three... In this case here, 
Um, and then there was one other, um, I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but one other that was also had to leave for legal issues. And then there was two others that, um, tra- or one other that transferred. So that leaves the class with only 15 kids. And when you subtract away those five kids, it falls from being the 17th best class to the 35th best class that year, Ooh. which is a, obviously a big jump downward. Um, that's big losses for MSU, especially when you saw that a lot of these kids already contributed on the field and were set to contribute in a big way next year and the, years, the three years to follow. follow. So that's a tough tough look for MSU, tough, uh, tough luck there. But uh, obviously they did the right thing with dismissing these kids because of the off-field issues. So I just wanted to look back um, to kind of give a picture of what this means for like MSU and their like kind of their talent on on team talent. Um, so we're gonna start in 2012 and then we're gonna talk about like just kind of give the ranking of every single recruiting class up to 17. So 2012 they were 34th, in 2013 they were 35th, then in 14 they were 25th, 15 they were 22nd. So they had been moving up, um, moving up kind of like a tier there, and then in 2016 they moved all the way up to 17th. Uh, so again, that was the best class, and they had been steadily rising in the recruiting classes um, from year to year. And then in 17, they took a big step back after they went three and nine uh, to 34th. But mm. so that was kind of back to that 2013, 2012 levels. Um, and then with the loss of all these kids to the 2016 class, that bumps that to the 35th um, when you put it into the algorithm that 24/7 uses. Bumps that back to the 35th. So that's kind of like the 13 class as well. Um, so for me, this kind of just shows that they're moving back to like pre thirteen, pre pre two thousand thirteen recruiting class levels. Um, so that's tough for MSU when you thought you were gonna have some of the best, some of the better recruiting classes in the country, um, like a top three class in the Big Ten every year. But uh, I mean, it's nothing they haven't dealt with before, but it's definitely tough losses for them. Sure. Uh, another thing is in that twenty sixteen class, it was already a pretty small class, only had twenty kids, and now it's down to only having fourteen of those kids left. That's a real small class, um, for sure. So that could uh, show some depth issues or show some problems where in, in the next few years they have to recruit more kids, and that makes it tough to recruit the best kids. So definitely a lot of problems there. But uh, having the 35th best class in the country isn't something MSU has never dealt with before. They have had that many times before, and they've they've been able to have on-field success still. Um, so moving on. Uh, this means that 11 kids have not left the team since the end of last year, uh, not counting graduates. Two of them were NFL draftees, and the rest left for a whole list of different reasons. Um, so a lot of those kids were going to compete for playing time this year or get their flat-out start for the team. Um, so those are big, a lot of those t- big losses, they're definitely notable. Um, not very many of those were players that just kind of like were nobodies on the team and just like transferred because they weren't going to get playing time. Most of them were going to get playing time, so then they still uh, still had to go. That's tough. That's always tough to lose players. Um, so, yeah, so in 2016 was their, one of their best recruiting classes, um, and now that looks like one of their worst recruiting classes, which is very tough. Um, they signed 11 four-stars, according to Rivals, and since then they have lost five of them, including their top three prospects. That's tough. Um, obviously, when you lose your uh, three best prospects of a recruiting class, it completely changes the outlook on that recruiting class. Um, so this makes it pretty tough to envision MSU having a ton of on-field success in 2017, coming off that three and nine season. And 2018's not look is uh, is endangered as well with losing so many players and having such a bad class and having a taking a step back in 2017 recruiting as well. It's not the end of the world, um, 
but it does mean that MSU will probably stay at that pre-2013 recruiting levels for a while um, because of just they're probably going to change how they recruit since they uh, ended up bringing in so many kids with uh, off-field issues. They're probably going to be a little gun-shy going after kids with off-field issues. Um, and so they, and they're probably there like AD and even like the NCA probably won't be too happy if they uh, keep bringing – they bring in more kids with off-field – some off-field lingering issues. So that's going to kind of handcuff them there. And, again, players are going to look at this and kind of be uh, – some of them be scared off. Some parents might be scared off a little. So it's going to hurt them on the recruiting trail. But um, – I think a good thing for them would just be at that pre-2013 level, somewhere in the 30s, uh, mid to um, mid to high 30s, um, and that'll be okay for them. They can definitely make a, they can definitely put on competitive, pick competitive teams on the field at that level, and um, I think that's what they're going to have to do. I don't think they're going to have much of an option. Uh, and I'm just kind of basing this off of what I've seen in the 16, 2016, 17, and 18 classes, um, and then looking forward into the future. Of the recruiting landscape, things are getting tougher in the recruiting in Michigan with Harbaugh in the state, um, James Franklin from Penn State recruiting in Michigan, Urban Meyer from Ohio State recruiting in Michigan. Um, a lot of new, a lot of new coaches around the Big Ten, and uh, it's getting getting really a competitive um, recruiting in the Midwest. Some good news for the MSU though is that D'Antonio won't be fired for all of this um, because he seems to have handled it correctly, and the NCAA will not have to sanction MSU because they handled it um, on their own. Uh, so it won't be like a situation like, um, uh, I don't know, I guess Penn State, but you don't really want to compare things to that because that was probably worse than this. But yeah. it won't be anything like that, and the coach won't be fired, so that's good. Um, the one thing is D'Antonio is going to be in the hot seat because of this um, has made a lot of people angry, I think, around the program. Uh, people don't like to see their school having their uh, brand tied to such horrible things like this. And um, people don't like to have, I mean, obviously people feel bad for the uh, the victims, and that's horrible, and they don't want the school that they go to or the school that they went to being, like, a, a dangerous place. Um, so, obviously, that's uh, it's causing some uh, some issues for D'Antonio, and he's going to be in the hot seat next year, I think. Um, especially that poor record last year doesn't help. Um, a drop in recruiting doesn't help. Uh, there's not a, a lot of people that are looking forward to MSU thinking that their best days are ahead of them, um, which they might be. I mean, D'Antonio can turn it around here, but uh, people are angry. So he's definitely in the hot seat, I think. I think if you, ha- you see another bad year, uh, if they go 3-9 and nine again, um, I think you could definitely see a lot of people calling for D'Antonio to be fired. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. I guess I, I mean that's MSU's uh, decision to make, MSU fans' decision to make. Um, <laughs> so he's got to win. Yeah, he's got to win. He's got to win. Uh, he's got to win for later. him, and he's got to win for the school here too. Yeah, he's got to show that things aren't completely falling apart because it looks it looks bad right now. But mm-hmm. uh, so he's got he's got a lot to prove. Um, he likes having a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, that's it. He's been doubted before. He's the chip on the shoulder guy, but uh, he's gonna have to do it now. Not not too too much later. There you go. No, I agree with you. All right, what are we moving on to here? Uh, you want to do lines updates? I can do lines updates. Um, all right, that sounds good. Yeah. All right, so we're moving on to Lions, Detroit Lions, ladies and gentlemen. Detroit Lions. Um, I'm just going to give a rundown of a few topics here on the Lions. Just some things that, not necessarily huge stories, but just things that you might not have heard about that um, we're going to give you a heads up on. So um, starting at the running back position, um, the Lions signed Matt Asiata. You probably heard that name. He's played for the Minnesota Vikings for a while. Um, 
We cut the old fullback um, to make room for Asiata. That was Burton, I think, right? Michael Burton? That's yeah, not familiar? I don't know. I think that's who it was that they cut. So it makes room for Matt Asiata, which is interesting because he's a he's actually a running back, but we're going to use him in the fullback role, uh, which I think is very interesting because he's going to have the running back skills with the ability to catch the ball a little bit and uh, you know run some routes and do some stuff like that and actually carry the ball um, in more than just like a one-yard situation. So I think that's pretty cool. And Caldwell talked about wanting to use the fullback in some different ways. I think that's pretty cool. What do you think of the Matt Asiata? Yeah, me and Corey talked about this. Um, I... I mean, I just I guess I have a bias against him, but I mean, he's a power back, right? Um, if we can use him to lead block and maybe even carry the ball and be the hammer that we can use to use him with Abdul, you know, as like the change of pace, I'll take it. Right, so cool. it seems like a good signing. Yeah. Solid um, at least. Yeah, I like the having running back, having an actual running back out there is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go. Taylor Decker, um, he might be hurt for an extended period of time. It looks like he just had shoulder surgery. That's rough. Um, which could keep him out for most of the season. Or um, if it, Hopefully it's a more minor surgery than a major surgery. He could be back. Um, it looks like he could be back anytime between the season opener and out the whole season. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Obviously he was a, I mean he's a starting left tackle. That's an important player on the team and uh, not having him would suck. But um, we don't really know what's going to happen with him. They said they would update us in the fall. Caldwell did. So. Yeah, I mean, that would suck. The offensive line was looking really solid. And if you take him out, I mean, I don't know who the backup is at the left tackle position. Yeah, uh, I'll touch on kind of who might replace him a little bit later. But yeah, hopefully, but, uh, hopefully I mean, he's able to play at least like half a season or something. Yeah, it was looking like a solid group. And, I mean, it might still be even without him. But hopefully he comes back as a season opener because that's... I mean, if you guys come back in February for the Super Bowl, oh, I'd be go. fine. That's so when we really face TV 12. Yeah. yeah, that's the only time we're really probably gonna need them. Um, that's when the line season starts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, after the after the fourth round. Alrighty, um, moving on. Um, drinking that Kool Aid here, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, Caldwell's made uh, some multiple statements about who's gonna be the starting running back. It looks like Amir Abdullah is gonna be the guy. Um, so that's good to see. I think he's the guy kind of with the most upside. So if he is showing that he's gonna be the starter, it looks like he might be uh, kind of fulfilling all that upside. So hopefully he stays healthy. He's had a lot of health issues here in the beginning of his career, but hopefully he stays healthy. He can be the starting running back. So that's pretty good news. Um, uh, update on Stafford. Uh, there's no news about his new contract yet. He's going into the last year of his contract, so we're trying to um, extend that out so he doesn't ever become a free agent. Um, he'll probably become the highest-paid player in the NFL because that's pretty much what every new contract does for quarterbacks, and he's probably worth it. Um, anytime you can have like a top ten quarterback type, uh, it's it's pretty much worth any amount of money. You got to have a quarterback, and there's not very many of them out there. So yeah, pay him now. Yeah, hopefully that gets done sooner than later. And I mean, hopefully he takes a little bit less money than he could get, but he probably won't. We'll see what happens. I don't, I don't blame him for taking all of it anyway. No, I wouldn't either. Alrighty, as long um, as it's not like Calvin and retires next year and then talks yeah, shit about us. Yeah, it'll fuck be all right. Fucking bitch. <laughs> all right, moving on. Um, the Lions seem pretty happy with a lot of their picks so far through OTAs. Um. Jared Davis uh, apparently started taking first-team reps right away, so that's good to see um, a middle linebacker get in there, getting those first-team reps. Sounds like he's being able to handle it pretty well, being able to understand things pretty well, which is always good to see, especially from your middle linebacker and your first-round pick. Um, Kenny Galladay, um, he was the wide receiver taken in the third round. Apparently he's getting a lot of work, and he's uh, supposed to be ready to be a weapon right away, so that'll be good um, for sure if he can actually get in there and give us some uh, good production. Good to see that from a third-round pick right away. Um, 
Then the other picks you haven't heard too much about, which is good. Um, you haven't heard any of them just being terrible, no off-field issues. So the draft looks like it was a, uh, it was at least decent, nothing, nothing glaringly terrible so far. So that's good. Um, the Lions' biggest issue from last year is probably the secondary. Um, you could argue some other things, but anything on the defense is fine. Yeah. Um, no arguments with that. So they uh, they signed DJ Hayden and they drafted Tease Tabor, which we've talked about before, to uh, kind of replace that. Um, to play on the other side of Darius Slay. These are some names to watch here. Um, they'll have a large impact on the team's success next, next year for sure. So hopefully one of those two can turn into a quality starter. Um, my money is probably on Tease Tabor just because he's uh, he's got he's a guy that hasn't shown any. Like DJ Hayden's had a chance and he t- hasn't done well in the NFL, but. Tease Tabor, this will be his first shot to show what he can do. Um, but I wouldn't completely rule out Hayden either. At one point, he was one of the top prospects. Um, I think he might have been the first corner taken that draft. Um, so hopefully he can uh, kind of show that he's, he's he was worth some of that um, draft stock and hopefully be a quality player for us, even if it's just like a, the third-string corner. Third-string corners get a lot of playing time still, or like a slot guy, something like that. Good hopefully, depth. yeah. yeah. Good, hopefully, we can get some depth in that position if both of these guys turn out, or at least one of them turns out, and he can give us that that um, number two corner, which is a, very important. Um, and then talking about last thing here will be is talking about the offensive tackle position. Um, you were asking earlier what oh, we're going to do up. without Decker. There you go. Yeah, so we had um, uh, offensive tackle Cyrus Quandijo. Quandijo. Um, not sure how you say his last name. He's a former Bills player. Is it Japanese? No, he, he was oh. black. I don't know if he's. Oh. Maybe he's a black Japanese. Mixed. I don't know. That's pretty wild. Definitely have to sign him now. I love it. Um, yeah, he played for the Bills. Um, he visited. Um, he's possibly going to fill in for Decker while he's gone. Um, the other guy, the guy that I kind of like better, um, not because I've really seen him. I've never really seen him play, but it's a guy that I think it would be cool if he worked out. Is uh, Joe Dahl. He was a late pick in last year's draft, which means he's going to play for his contract's going to be tiny. Um, so he's possible to uh, replace Decker, which would be really cool. Um, he played for Washington State in college, so he definitely needed that first year in the NFL to kind of adjust to the pro game, the pro style. Um, it's very different from what he did at Washington State, and the, they have like an air raid, so their their linemen are pretty much standing up the whole time. They're not doing much run blocking. They're not even faking the run blocking. They're just completely pass blockers. Um, so we'll see what happens with him. Hopefully he can turn out to be a uh, quality player for us and maybe give us Get fill in for Decker while he's gone at least. Who so. who dog get drafted by? You know the Lions. Oh, yeah. oh shit. Okay. Yeah, it was just last year. It was oh, a twenty sixteen okay. draft. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So that'd be cool. Yeah. No, bring someone up. All right. Um, we good with that? Yeah, I think we're good with the uh, Lions news for now. Yeah, looking good. Um, did you want to go to your last one? Or you want to go to my last one? Um, yours is a high note. We'll end on yours today. How about that? And I'll do mine here. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, so then the last thing is we're doing three sports topics in a row here, ladies and gentlemen. This Good is Lord. never before seen. Um, so there's my last thing is just some notes on um, college sports in general, kind of. Um, we talk about college football recruiting a lot in this podcast, um, college football in general a lot, and college football recruiting especially. Um, it's important not to overreact to recruiting, and the kind of the reasons why I've been on display recently. Um, for one, uh, Penn State, they had the number one class for 2018. Um, kind of coming into this year, um, after like the last 2017 class was finalized, everybody looked at the 2018 class, and it was, boom, Penn State already out to a huge lead. They had three five-stars. They were looking great. Two of the top ten kids in the country. And now 
here we are just months later and the number three recruit in the country and the number six recruit in the country have both decommitted and um now penn state i mean they're free falling down the list of like top recruiting classes and that's absolutely really hurt them um so it's important to as this really shows how important it is not to overreact when a kid commits especially if he commits a year or two years before signing day i mean that commitment is it's a soft commitment every single time it's just kind of what the, it might just be what they're feeling that day sometimes it's a hard commitment but sometimes it's just what they're feeling that day um so yeah penn state they lost the number three kid mika parsons and the number six kid justin fields um who are going to be the two <laughs> best players in that recruiting class anyway and uh that's pretty nice now they're both gone yeah i mean did, screw penn did they state. go somewhere or no oh uh, no they've just decommitted they haven't committed anywhere else um no, for uh, Mika Parsons, the number three kid, it's kind of like up in the air. Ohio, a lot of people think Ohio State might be one of them, which this is not any better than him going to Penn State. But, <laughs> the but they really don't know. And then number six, he's a quarterback, and it looks like uh, people. some people have said Florida. Um, but, again, they're really not sure. Michigan doesn't seem to be in the running for the, the quarterback because we already have two quarterbacks in this class, um, or one committed and then one other that we're really looking hard for. And then the number three kid, Mika Parsons, that's a kid in Michigan is probably like – I mean, they're kind of looming, but they're kind of a long shot for it. But, I mean, it's, it's a long way from signing day. You never know what happens with Mika Parsons. He's really open. He's really – nobody really knows. And then Justin Fields, again, he just decommitted like a day ago, so people yeah. are, aren't really sure what to think of that yet. Yeah. And then the other kind of case where you have to, like, think, oh, what is is how I got – you have to be careful not to overreact about recruiting is what we saw at MSU um, with their recruiting class, having so many kids leave um, – transfer, blah, 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 get kicked off the team. Um, so that showed a class that was good that, you know, has taken a step back even after signing day. Um, and you see this at a lot of schools, a lot of transfers, a lot of kids bust, but um, yeah, and a lot of kids that might be high recruits that have off-field issues, you have to be careful with them if they're actually going to be able to play for you. So I just wanted to point this out that, you know, you can never overreact about um, recruiting you always have to take it with a grain of salt. You never know what's really going to happen in the end. Um, so, yeah, it's important to do, and it's always good to talk about Penn State's recruiting class falling apart because I, I really don't like Penn State at one go. bit. So, screw them. Um, um, in other news, uh, Ohio State, they fired their – or they didn't fire him. It sounds like he retired. He said he retired, but it kind of seems like they kind of made him retire. Did he retired to spend more time with his family? Yeah, then he got fired. Like that. That's yeah. what. That's what they. Are. So, but uh, that, that was Thad Mata, their Ohio State basketball coach. Um, the Ohio State basketball program in a whole has kind of collapsed recently. Um, they went from being one of the best to just kind of being like a almost pathetic team. Um, they had a lot of like off-field issues. They had kids saying that they didn't or like they transferred because the program sucked, and it was just like <laughs> there's like weird stuff going on. So. Um, but Matt had uh, Mata, Thad Mata, had won a lot of uh, a lot of games at Ohio State. Um, they won a lot of Big Ten titles and uh, went to a couple Final Fours. So they had won they won four or five Big Ten titles, so regular season titles. And they won the Big Ten tournament four times. Um, they made two Final Fours, and he was there for thirteen years. So he had a really good track record. Um, he was one of the best coaches in the Big Ten for sure, if not the best coach for at least like a little five year period probably. Um, had a lot of big names go through there, like Mike Conley and Greg Oden. So, um, I don't know. It's uh, good to see him go, actually, if you <laughs> ask me. But, um, yeah, so that's uh, kind of an end of, a, end of an era there at Ohio State basketball. Down goes Mata. Yeah, so we'll see what they do to replace him. Another funny thing was, he got when as soon as the news came out that he was gone, they came out with like a list of like possible replacements. And the list was like absolutely ridiculous. It was like 
Brad Stevens, who's the head coach of the Boston Celtics, who were the one seed in the East last year, <laughs> and then like um, just ridiculous names, names of play, co- coaches that are at like elite programs. Like I'm, I'm surprised Coach Steve K was Kerr? on the list. Yeah, it was just like ridiculous <laughs> stuff like that, and it was just, people are just every time there's a, a coach opening, everybody just immediately turns like the best coach in that profession, it's like <laughs> like they're gonna go to whatever uh, random place. But anyway, so that was kind of funny, but um. Yeah, the end of Thad Mata, uh, good to see him gone. Uh, one last team to compete with in the Big Ten. <laughs> but uh, it'll be interesting to see who they uh, replace him with because Ohio State is obviously a football school. Um, so, But he had a good success there as the basketball coach. It'll be interesting to see how lucrative of a job that is for other head coaching candidates. Um, so, yeah, I don't think Ohio State cares too much about the basketball team either. I think the football team is their number one concern, yeah. as is Michigan's. But That and paying refs. Yeah, that too. Very important. Very important stuff there. Um, my last note here is uh, Malik Zaire, a former Notre Dame quarterback who lost the QB battle to Deshaun Kaiser. Um, he lost it two years ago, and then he's like tried to win it again the next year, lost it again. Um, he's transferring. Uh, a lot of people think he's going to go to Florida, and he'll be able to play right away. I'm not sure if he's a grad transfer or if it's because he didn't play last year. I'm, really, I'm not exactly sure, but I know he will be able to play right away wherever he goes. Um... So that means that uh, if he does go to Florida, he will be opening the season and he does win the starting job, which both of those are ifs. Um, it looks like there's probably a 90% chance he goes to Florida, and then if he goes there, there's probably like a 60% chance he wins the starting job. Um, but if those things happen, he'll be starting the season next year against your Michigan Wolverines. Um, hmm. So he's going to get injured. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> um, a lot of people are like really thinking this is like a big, big deal. And, like, they're thinking, oh, that's going to completely change the outlook of that game. I really don't think it will. Um, My ass. I don't think he really is a better player than, like, the quarterbacks they already have at, Mich- or at Florida. They don't have any great quarterbacks at Florida, but their quarterback there right now is pretty average, and I think he's pretty average as well. Uh, he's a running quarterback instead of what they have there now, but um, I, I don't think there's anything to really worry about here if you're a Michigan fan. Um, he didn't start at Notre Dame, and that's because he's not, like, the greatest quarterback ever. He's a pretty average player. And they, I mean, they went four and eight last year, and he didn't even get any playing time. So he's not like the best quarterback ever. Um, <laughs> so we just sitting on him here. Yeah, that's something to see there. When you hear people talking about it, and like, oh, the great Malik Zaire coming to beat Michigan. <laughs> I don't think there's too much to worry about there. But um, it is this interesting little note. It could you could see a change in kind of how Florida runs their offense next year for that opening is the only thing, not necessarily making it a better offense, just a little different. There so, yeah. you go. This uh, this there you go for uh, don't don't overreact when you see them legs out here. Trying to pull a fast one. What? They're trying to pull a fast yeah, one. Yeah, they, so they think they're slick. Don Brown's uh, gonna freaking end that dude. <laughs> gonna break him in half. Uh, Alrighty, I'm making, done. Making pulls Achilles. Got them worn out. Three There's in a row. Achilles. Three in a row. Good lord. Oof. All right, time for uh, me to finish strong here. Uh, so Tuesday was the seventh. June sixth was the seventy third anniversary of D Day. So I wanted to bring you this because we don't talk about it a lot anymore. We don't talk about American history. Specifically, military history, unless we like to talk about how bad America is. So, June 6th, 1944, was D Day. Um, it was known as Operation Overlord. Um, 156,000 Allied forces, along with more than 5,000 ships and 13,000 aircraft, supported the Allied invasion onto the beaches of France. Um, Germany only had about 200 aircraft in western France when the invasion began, so we had um, the advantage in the air. Um, the major commanders for the battle were, or for the invasion were Eisenhower, uh, USA, Montgomery from Britain, and Rommel, uh, Germany. The uh, enemy. 
The enemy, yeah, the Axis. Uh, the Nazi bastards. Um, Eisenhower, one of his big quotes of this was, we will accept nothing less than full victory. Um, it's strange because he wrote two speeches, one for victory and one for defeat of D-Day. Um, he thought it was kind of a coin toss 50-50 whether we were going to make it or not. Um, a successful invasion. Um, when the Allied forces pontoon boats, the doors opened, the machine guns immediately fired upon them of the Germans. Um, many of the soldiers didn't even make it into the water alive. Uh, the men who did this, they were like 18 years old to 25 years old mainly. Um, they're like our age. It's incredible the sacrifice they made. Um, if they made it off the boat, then they had to make it to the beach where they had to withstand mortars and machine guns, you know, enemy planes strafing them. Um, constantly watching death and destruction all around them, all the while pushing forward. Um, I'm going to just go through the beaches real quick here. So there were five beaches. Um, Utah Beach. Um, this beach was added in the invasion plans at the last minute. Um, thousands of paratroopers dropped in behind enemy lines. Many drowned in marshes because they were weighed down by heavy equipment. And many were shot out of the sky. Um, those that did land were outside the drop zone. Um, they had to improvise. And they actually succeeded in carrying out their mission. Um, the rest of the forces landed a mile off point because of strong currents that, you know, pushed their boats. Um, they got lucky, actually, because they landed on an area of the beach that was less defended than where they were going to land. By the end of the day, they had advanced four miles inland, suffering relatively few casualties in the process compared to the other beaches. That was on the Utah beach. Utah beach, yeah. You want to comment on that at all? Like, um, no, but I did wanted to say, like, okay, so when these guys were coming in, they were coming in the beaches... That had been like the Germans. They kind of they had been expect. They didn't know they were coming that day, right? They, but they expected them. They had been preparing for an invasion. Yeah, they didn't know where at exactly the um, yeah, Allied like, forces were going to hit. Yeah, they but thought, most of the beaches they had already set up like defenses and they, they had, had set like, up defenses everywhere. Yeah, they, they actually go. thought we were going to go farther north because there was yeah. a there was a point where they thought we were going to hit and they thought for sure we we're going to hit actually farther north. But but they had big yeah. concrete bunkers and they had like machine guns, machine set up gun to, like, turrets, um, barbed wire. Uh, yeah. defenses so we couldn't actually land the pontoon boats on the beaches because yeah. they would cut up the boats. So we had to, yeah, so people were getting in the water, I mean the people were basically swimming up to this beach and then take, all the while getting shot at by machine, machine guns. Machine guns. And I mean, yeah, I mean I, they were really discharging right at machine gun fire. And yeah, so like when you watch Saving Private Ryan so. I think that's like one of the best scenes if you actually want to like watch a like kind of a reenactment of D-Day because like when they open those doors, right away bullets yeah, just like raining down on you. Like yeah, people just dead. Scene. And guys would, like, jump off the side of the boat just to get into the water. And then you had to swim with all your equipment on you. You, you know, you'd get killed just doing that. Um, so, yeah, that was Utah Beach. They said the rel relatively few casualties compared to the other beaches. Um, they got four miles inland by the end of the day. So that's pretty damn good compared to the other beaches that I'm going to read you about. Um, next up was Omaha Beach. So this was the bloodiest of the beaches. Um, it was surrounded by steep cliffs and heavily defended. Roughly 2,400 troops turned up dead or missing at the end of the day from Omaha. Um, Army intel, right off the bat, they underestimated the number of German soldiers in the area. Um, the aerial bombardment did little damage to the German positions. Only two of the 29 amphibious tanks launched at sea reached shore because of rough waters. So they had like, it was a stormy day, right? So when they launched the tanks from the sea, only two of the tanks made it that they launched from the sea. Um, the carnage was so severe that U.S. Lieutenant General Omar Bradley um, he considered abandoning the entire operation, but slowly his men got to safety, to the safety of the seawall at the foot of the bluffs, and then they started, you know, advancing up the bluffs. Um, a group of army rangers scaled the massive peak to take out the artillery pieces that the Germans had there, 
that then let U.S. warships move in closer to um, to the shore to fire at German fortifications. By night, Americans had moved in one and a half miles inland. So that's all, an entire day of fighting, and all they got was one and a half miles inland up the beach compared to the first uh, beach that I read to you about, four miles. which they got four miles, which is Utah. You want to talk about Omaha? Um, yeah, Omaha is kind of like the, uh, that was kind of, I mean, I think the Private Ryan um, scene is from Omaha, right? I yeah, I think so. Omaha is the, uh, I'm not sure the largest, um, it was like the largest battle of any of the beaches that day, I think. I'm not sure, but it was the worst fighting. It was yeah, one so of the worst like, fighting. Yeah, definitely a lot of heroes in uh, Omaha. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that really shitty. Um, a lot of heroes. A lot of heroes. Um, the next beach, Gold Beach. It was the middle of the five. Um, aerial bombardment had wiped out many of the defenses, and British warships also proved extremely effective. Um, as an example, there was a cruiser called the HMS Ajax. It said it displayed such pinpoint accuracy that it sent one shell through a slot of its shot. It shot artillery through a slot of the concrete exterior of the German defenses and blew it up from the inside. So they said it was the military equivalent of a hole-in-one. So, like, they shot it from miles away that they were able to slip it through the concrete exterior and, you know, just blow it up from the inside. So that was that was incredible. They said the British ships were really good at that. And they said within an hour, the British were pushing rapidly inland. So compared to the other beaches where it took them the whole day to get, you know, one and a half miles and four miles... Um, Gold Beach, within an hour, they were pushing rapidly inland. Um, so that looks like that was really one of the successful landings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just... Yeah, Gold Beach seemed like entirely the best, the most successful, because um, I think kind of they were going against the easiest, the, the worst defenses, um, looks like there in Gold Beach. Well, maybe not the worst defenses, but the bombardment actually worked out, yeah, and then the, the ships really were doing good work, too. Yeah. Um, so next up, Sword Beach. Um, around midnight that night, British troops, along with Canadians... Paratroopers drop behind enemy lines to secure bridges and destroy others. So they'd either capture bridges or destroy the bridges, depending on what they wanted to do, you know, how they were going to plan the invasion. Um, British troops then landed at 7 a.m., and moderate fighting ensued. Um, they said they moved inland relatively quickly, but then the Germans launched a counterattack, and at one point the Germans actually took back a section of the beach, like got all the way back to the beachhead. But then again, the British and um, Canadians pushed them back again. So... That beach, Sword Beach, was uh, not as easy to take as uh, Gold Beach, but it was like the second most, uh, I guess you would say, lightly uh, defended beach. So those are the five. Um, it was the, I just want to read you off the casualties here. Um, these numbers represent total killed, wounded, missing, or captured. Um, for, so for the United States, on D-Day, um, 6,603, specifically... 1,465 killed for the United Kingdom uh, 2,700 they don't have the specific number killed Canada 1,074 359 killed and the Germans they were estimated between 4,000 to 9,000 uh, they don't have the estimated um, killed and yeah, obviously um, it seems like more more allied troops between the United States um, UK and Canada would probably uh, um, probably died here because of it's so much harder to invade oh, yeah. than it is the whole ground, and that Germany was whole, trying to hold their ground while um, the Allies were trying to invade. So that explains that um, why they why those numbers might be higher for the United States than they are for Germany. But um, yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine being, a, yeah. being one of those guys on the first boats that just 
had the door of that boat fall down and just have them just yeah, looking at the, the machine first boats, guns. Yeah, like everybody was going to I mean, maybe even the second and third wave, you know, just get mowed down, mowed down, mowed down. I mean, it's just incredible what they did for us. And they did it for love of country because they thought America was worth defending. Um, they did it to save humanity from the Nazis and the evil of the Axis forces, you know, Japan and uh, Italy too. Um, you don't learn much about these things all anymore in school. I know I didn't. Um, it's sad, but it's true. Mainly what I learned in school about America during World War II was that we interned Japanese, Americans, and we were just bad. That's what I learned in school. Um, Google didn't even have a little doodle to remember this day. You know, every time you open up Google, they have some stupid little drawing to commemorate all these dumbass days. And they don't have damn shit about D-Day. Um, it's pathetic that our nation doesn't look back on these things. Because when you talk about terrorism and stuff these days, you got to understand that how do we expect people to love our country and how do we expect to bring in refugees and teach them to love our nation and to love the freedom we cherish and to respect it when some of our own people don't anymore? I mean, I know most of us still do. Our military is still the greatest in the world. We have an all-volunteer military that defends us every day. Um, it's really an amazing thing what men still do for us and women do for us. Um, People still do for us every day. Um, the freedoms that we hold dear, they fight for. I just, when we have problems that we think about in our lives, um, people in the military, they're facing much bigger ones every day, and they're volunteering for us. Um, our problems pale in comparison. Conley, you want to comment on this at all? Um, yeah, obviously, uh, it's phenomenal what, they, what the uh, troops do for us every day. It's phenomenal what the troops did for us on D-Day, um, especially. It was probably one of the most um, heroic days for so many men, um, in the history of our nation, um, it's it's really it's like the stuff of folklore. Um, it really is. Did. It's uh, it's incredible, truly incredible stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's not. Just, it wasn't just our nation too. I mean, it was the Brits, it was yeah, the Canadians, uh, Canada stepping up there. Canada um, stepping up. They weren't up. so friendly that day. They're mean sons of bitches that day. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like that. Hey, yeah, yeah, but uh, UK really it was more revenge for them too because after uh, they got pushed back out, you know, and they were really UK took the brunt of that because. They were getting bombarded on their streets. You know, Hitler was hitting them on their uh, their yeah, civilian the population. Getting, yeah, they were getting bombed every single day. London, yeah. all this. Like, I mean, Churchill with his day. speeches. Um, so it really was, it was a fight for humanity. And you got to understand that whenever someone talks bad about America, you just got to go back and look at every single one of our wars. Um, people died for our freedoms, and people are still dying for our freedoms every day. You know, you talk about Raqqa right now. We have guys over there who are fighting, you know, flying the Apache helicopters, they're fighting ISIS, and some of them are going to die, we're going to hear about that, and uh, they're doing that for us, they're not just doing that to just go kill terrorists to kill terrorists, they're doing it so that they don't attack us over here, they're not just doing that to liberate a city in Syria that no one gives a shit about, they're doing that so that our freedoms can still be defended to this day, and every day when you hear about, you know, Afghanistan, you know, why do we still have troops over there, why do we care about Afghanistan, it's because if we're not over there killing them, they're going to be over here killing us, look at Europe. Look at France, look at Germany, look at every one of these damn places. You don't attack, you don't kill them where they are, they're going to come kill us in our homes. And that's a sad reality that we face, but that is the reality. And thank God for our troops, thank God for what they did for us in D-Day, and every other major battle that we fought and we won. Yeah, amen. Amen. Um, real updates real quick, or one update I guess. Um, Thursday, 10 a.m., good God, James Comey is going to be testifying in front of the Senate. So I just want to talk to you about, the, real quick, because this is not, the media is making it out to be some Watergate thing, right? He's, he's not going to say anything. If he says that Trump obstructed justice, James Comey will be put in handcuffs in a minute, because he'll break, it's breaking the law, because he's supposed to report it under the law. Um, pretty much the gist of it's going to be, Comey's going to say, oh, I felt uncomfortable talking to Trump. 
Oh, I didn't feel good about it. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Comey's not going to say anything, and if he does say anything, he's going to jail. I can't wait for this to watch them rip into James Comey and hopefully put his ass behind bars. Conley? Hey, man. Um, it'll be interesting to see what he says. It's probably going to be a whole lot of nothing. Um, we'll talk about that probably. If there ever if there's anything important to say um, if, that he says, we'll probably talk about it. If he doesn't say anything, we might touch on it just to let you know he didn't say anything. I mean, he's a snake. He's a disgruntled employee. He's trying to politically yeah. assassinate the president with this hearing. The, the media, I think ABC and maybe CNN... <laughs> They're doing a pregame show of it at 9 a.m. for an hour. Yeah. They're carrying the whole thing live, and then they're doing an hour afterwards with their anchors just discussing it. Oh, my God, James Comey. you got to remember something here. I'm sorry, I'm getting into this real bad. But the Democrats hated this guy ever since he ratted out Hillary, right? Yeah. And everybody hated him up until the minute Trump fired him, and now the Democrats love him and acting like he's some great guy. Everybody hated him. James Comey was a rat. Everyone knew it. Trump fired him, and now they all think he's some pariah second coming of Jesus. It's all bullshit. I can't wait for this shit to be over with. Yeah, it'll be good to have this pass this. Um, I think it's going to be a whole lot of nothing. Whole lot of nothing. Um, he also, they also sent him questions from a different Senate, Senate committee, and he refused to answer them, saying that he was a private citizen. So why isn't he answering Senate questions, I wonder? Yeah. Fucking snake. Alrighty. Um, I think that's about it for today. Yeah, we're good. Alrighty. Um, one uh, quick reminder Oh, yeah, here. no, sorry. The invasion of Raqqa that started Tuesday was on the anniversary of D-Day, and Mattis, who is a military historian, right... He understands history symbolism, so he was probably telling his guys, or at least his guys knew, that yeah. we're going to invade a city just like our guys did back in D-Day. That's the parallel that I want to draw there. Sorry. Okay, yeah. Very yeah. cool. Very cool stuff very there. Cool Hopefully, stuff. Um, there's success there. Hopefully we'll kill those ISIS stay bastards. Safe. Um, we'll get them. We have successful mission there. Alrighty, uh, quick oh, yeah. reminders here. I do want to remind everyone to uh, please follow us at the Fake News Pod Spread the word. Spread the uh, word. Spread the word. Send the link to your friends. Uh, yeah, as many people as you can. That'd be great. Um, thanks for listening. We'll be back Friday with more. Maybe touch on the Comey hearing and lots of other stuff. Oh, and also, if you have a, a topic, sports or politics, that um, you want to hear about, let us know. DM us at the Fake News Pod on Twitter. Um, DM us on our uh, personal uh, Twitter accounts. And just let us know what you want to hear about, and we'll uh, try to talk about that for you. Sure. Till next time, signing off.